TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. The international trade in arms is the biggest growth industry of all. Killing people, or preparing to kill them, is considered very valuable in the international economic system. But the death, homelessness, injury, poverty and starvation caused by the use of these weapons is not even registered. As a deficit. Who's counting? Marilyn Waring on sex, lies, and global economics. A classic from the film on radio archives of TUC Radio. This film was a secret favorite for those who wanted to decode the economic system of perpetual destructive growth, and for those who looked for an intelligent explanation of the connection between economics and war. Now, finally, it has become accessible on the Internet on the website of the National Film Board of Canada at www.nfb.ca. Look under Marilyn Waring, the real star of the documentary by Terry Nash. Marilyn Waring was only 22 when she was first elected to the New Zealand Parliament. Re-elected three times, she soon became chair of the prestigious Public Expenditures Committee, the sole budget, appropriations, public accounts committee of Parliament. She was shocked and dismayed when she learned that all countries that are members of the United Nations, practically the whole world, are forced to keep their books and design their budgets under the system of national income accounting, which records monetary transactions as gross domestic product. Marilyn Waring said in Part 1 that the GDP system counts only cash transactions in the market. In other words, it recognizes no value other than money. This means there is no value to peace, to the preservation of the environment, and no value to unpaid work. The system leaves out half the population of the planet and the planet itself, she says. This segment begins with war. Under the GDP accounting system, war is the biggest growth industry of all. When John Maynard Keynes and Richard Stone invented the GDP formula during World War II, they explicitly designed it as a system of how to pay for the war, end quote. This British system was imposed on the world in 1953. No country may be a member of the UN, deal with the IMF or World Bank unless they do their national accounting based on the GDP. And some say that unlimited growth along with globalization has driven the wars and environmental destruction of the past 50-plus years. In spite of the magnitude of the problem with growth and GDP accounting, there is an encouraging aspect. If a global system can be designed by two economists, Mr. Keynes and Mr. Stone, and if it can get imposed not so long ago, in 1953, It is possible and necessary to design a different system and set a date for change in the near future. Here is Marilyn Waring in the soundtrack of the film about her, 
Who's Counting? Sex, Lies and Global Economics. After addressing the issue of war, she presents some of her ideas for a replacement system to the GDP. The international trade in arms is the biggest growth industry of all. The five permanent members of the Security Council are also the five leading arms exporters in the world. Killing people, or preparing to kill them, is considered very valuable in the international economic system. Arms exports account for more than half the trade surplus of the developed economies. But the death, homelessness, injury, poverty and starvation caused by the use of these weapons is not even registered as a deficit. If a country develops an economic system that is based on how to pay for the war, and if the amounts of fixed capital investment that are apparent are tied up in armaments, and if that country is a major exporter of arms and its industrial fabric is dependent on them, then it would be in that country's interests to ensure that it always had a market. It is not an exaggeration to say that it is clearly in the interests of the world's leading arms exporters to make sure that there is always a war going on somewhere. Every minute, 30 children die from want of food and inexpensive vaccines. And every minute, the world's military budget absorbs $1.3 million of the public treasury. This is war. The United States now devotes over $200 billion a year to military defense against foreign enemies. But 45% of Americans are afraid to go out alone at night within one mile of their homes. This is war. For every 100,000 people in the world, there are 556 soldiers, but only 85 doctors. This is war. For every soldier, the average world military expenditure is $22,000. For every school-aged child, the average public education expenditure is $380. This is war. The cost of a single new nuclear submarine equals the annual education budget of 23 developing countries with 160 million school-aged children. This is war. War is marketable. War pays, literally. War contributes to growth and development. Philippines can be seen as a microcosm of the entire developing world. 
These are the hills overlooking the port city of Cebu in the southern part of the Philippines. It's a rural area which has been left vacant by an absentee landowner. A group of families have moved on to this land and built their huts and established a community here. Most of the men only get sporadic jobs or they provide cheap labor for some of the large cash crop plantations around the country. So it's really up to the women themselves to provide for the children. The average Filipino woman has eight children to raise and no access to abortion, family planning or divorce. You can imagine the anxiety that a mother of eight must feel if she doesn't know where she's going to get enough food to feed them all every day. This is the reason that women in rural areas all over the world grow food crops or raise farm animals. This sort of farming is usually called subsistence agriculture. It doesn't involve the exchange of money, but it does ensure that these children will eat. The system of national accounts says that the domestic and personal services which don't count are the cleaning, decoration and maintenance of the dwelling occupied by the household, the cleaning, servicing and repair of household goods, the care of the sick, infirm or old people, the transportation of members of the household or their goods, the preparation and serving of meals, the care, training and instruction of children. The World Bank would argue that to change the conditions of life for these people requires export growth, to make room for productive exporting enterprises. These unproductive women and their families would simply be kicked off the land. The new company could then take further advantage of the homelessness it had helped to create by getting cheap labor here. The number of homeless children in the urban squalor of developing countries is now epidemic in its proportions. The cycle of poverty begins to repeat itself very early as the eldest girl in a family at age eight or nine is expected to give up school and look after her youngest siblings, while her mother uses that time to do whatever she can to keep her family alive. Older boys may be left to fend for themselves and to sleep in the streets. Jennifer and Renren are 10-year-olds. They're just two of the children available through this Japanese brochure, which sells men-only tourist junkets to the Philippines. Recent studies in Thailand, which also has a lucrative business in female sexual slavery, have shown that 70% of the women and girls have become infected with the HIV virus. Those who sexually exploit children are counted as doing productive work, increasing economic growth. 
even if their activities are illegal, they're considered valuable enough to be in the calculations because they're income generating. Female sexual slavery is a major growth industry worldwide. And where a multi-million dollar industry in prostitution is operating, full advantage is taken of this grinding poverty. Foreign-owned companies and a small Filipino elite own 90% of the land. In a country of 58 million people, 20 million are now homeless. Thanks to multinational monocrop plantations, the Philippines is the 14th largest exporter of food in the world. And yet 80% of the children who live here can't get enough to eat. Over one billion people on the planet are malnourished. In the developing countries, 50,000 people a day die from malnutrition. Seventeen million children in the world die each year from diseases that are related to poverty. Two-thirds of these deaths are preventable. The gross domestic product claims to measure the well-being of a country. When my friends Imelda and Loris harvest New Zealand seafood for their families, it isn't seen as economically valuable. But if they went and bought the oysters in tins at the supermarket, then that would be counted. Before the Europeans come on, the Marys never ever had um, electricity and things like that. So their food mainly depended on from the sea, was gathered from the sea. We have a custom that's called kaimoana. Its meaning is gathering of, of food, mainly shellfish, from the sea. We go out when it's the tide's low and pick up seafood, mussels, oysters. The oysters take about oh, two to three years to grow. So that's why you just take a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, we only usually take enough food for a meal, you know. Then if you're still hungry in a couple of days, you come back and get another bucket full. And then you have them fresh all the time. But we never sell it. The old Maoris don't sell sell food, shell no. food. It's not meant to be. It's meant, you know, they... You give they, it away, you never it, ever sell, sell it. it. You get the odd one who'll take it back to the cities to sell, but the elders usually come down hard on them and say, Why? it's costing you nothing, and if you take, come and take a whole lot of food from here, then the next person that comes along to get some can't find it because you're taking it all away and selling it for money. You should leave it for food. Well, if I'm going down to a beach uh, to collect uh, kaimoana, I always behave the way that I've been taught uh, by the local people, by the Māori people. And I find in this and in so many of the uh, practices in Aotearoa, in New Zealand, that uh, 
they make perfect sense. I mean, both perfect economic sense, perfect environmental sense, perfect ecological sense, uh, from, you know, centuries of tradition of indigenous people. So why change it? Why behave any other way? I certainly feel in this entire journey that my constituents and then women and the ecosystem has been my teachers. Very early when I was a member of parliament, there was an application made for a prospecting license on Mount Perongia by a, a company called Goldmines New Zealand. And uh, the planning procedure was such that the mining company could show all the apparent good <laughs> that was going to accrue to all of this area. We'll provide loads of jobs, uh, we'll provide loads of support to the service infrastructures, you know, your schools will stay open, you'll get more roading, uh, your post offices, all of those kinds of services, your electricians and plumbers and everybody else will have loads of jobs while we're involved in all of this. There'll be export earnings, it's gold we're talking about. Uh, there'll be substantial reductions in overseas funds. You know, we'll be here for years. Yeah, the usual growth development kinds of arguments. No debit side, you notice. There's never any debit side in terms of this kind of development. Nobody talking about what you're going to do with all the materials that you take out of the mountain that then begin to uh, leach into surrounding farmland. The kind of scarring that would be happening in the bush and the forest and the mountains, the, the ruin of the habitat of so many species. Colin Murray was a party official in my constituency and a key member of the local farmers organization working against the gold mine license. It's a fascinating mountain because it's different every day. A little bit of cloud behind it. It, it was a volcano originally. It also uh, plays a big part in our lives because it affects the weather so much. We have 90-inch rainfall here, which makes this area so good for, for dairying and farming generally. Um, and that's brought about to a very, very large extent by Mount Parangia. The water around here, I have a lovely stream through the farm across the road there and the water, the tests that the Waikato Regional Authority have done on the water, it's, it's amongst the purest water in the country and uh, that's just something you can't put a value on. Economics is a, is a tool of people in power. I mean economics didn't just come up from nowhere. Um, it's a tool of those who want to exploit. It's a justification uh, and so as a so-called science it doesn't allow for the introduction of values that don't find their way into a mathematical formula. It also operates in terms of language. You know, if you want to argue that uh, mining this mountain would be devastating, you are invited to use a whole lot of words that are called soft, you know, flaky, uh, value-laden, subjective. Economics has got it down really tight, you know, so that if you're not talking their language, if you're not talking in their jargon, you're not part of the argument, you know. So the power of economics mirrors to a great extent, you know, the political 
power rampant anywhere else. The economic activity that the mountain is engaged in is like 24 hours a day, never ending. It's the habitat for the pollinating species without which none of this agriculture could survive. It's uh, controlling the microclimate for, for the production that comes from everything out here. It's breathing, I mean, it's creating oxygen. None of those features can find a very easy expression in terms of cost-benefit analysis. I mean, you can't run around and say, oh, well, so much oxygen is being produced from these trees on a 24-hour basis, and the same volume of oxygen in containers in a hospital would equal, and therefore, the 24-hour oxygen production of this mountain equals. Who's going to do that? This entire story so early in my political years demonstrated to me the absolute hollowness of the mathematical formula that we have to work with. There was a tremendous uproar from the locals and uh, uh, plenty of meetings well attended and with uh, Marilyn Waring's help we managed to block the, uh, the miners so that uh, that's not going to take place now. Uh, it's a forest reserve now, it's, it's all that bush-clad mountain is, is reserved as a forest park. This here, this farming that you can see all around you, is here forever. It's not going to go away and we're producing something far more valuable than gold. Uh, we're producing food and clothing for people, wool and so on. And you know, mankind can do without gold but you can't last long without food. Uh, so. Uh, you know, that was our argument, and, and uh, I think it's the argument. Uh, uh, this goes on forever if we look after it. It's ours for a short time while we're here on Earth. But someone else has then got to take over. And uh, providing we look after it, it should get better and better. It was just a local story, you know, in my constituency. But I think as, uh, as an analogy, it can be expanded to the whole planet. But what are we after then? What are the alternatives? Your country, Canada or mine, New Zealand, were there a political will, could establish qualitative environmental indicators. Indicators that told us what was happening to water quality, air quality, the remaining stands of forest, the exploitation of mineral resources, the reproduction of fish species, the habitats of endangered species. There is no reason why tomorrow Canada or New Zealand could not establish time use surveys because the one common denominator that all of us have the one thing we might be said to choose to exchange, that is our own, is time. And time is a better description of the needs for intervention in people's lives 
than any other indicator. It shows you where the crisis points are. It shows you where the service needs are as a policymaker. In a study conducted by the Commission on the Status of Women in Canada, it was demonstrated that two-thirds of all primary health care took place in the home. If two-thirds of the budget for primary health care were directed towards those responsible for that care, imagine what would happen to that budget and how that budget would be redistributed and how the priorities would be turned on their head. These are the kinds of effects in a budgetary sense that would flow from time use surveys. Why don't policymakers or politicians or bureaucrats like this idea? Well, first of all, it's terrifying. They would have to exercise judgment. <laughs> they don't have a unidimensional set of figures to which they can look and say, is growth up or down? thereby hangs our decision. Language is a tool available to all of us. None of you, when you leave this room, should ever again say, my mother doesn't work, my wife doesn't work. That particularly relates to people who are in media or teaching positions. Push for parity join political parties and go to their annual conferences and year after year after year drive them crazy. Half the candidates shall be women. Half the candidates shall be women. Join this party till you get it through, then move on to the next one. I mean... Just as there is no one-way feminism, there is no one political tactic available here. There is no one political strategy. It is broad and as wide as our imaginations can take it once we have heard and seen and recognised that the emperor has no clothes. You must choose, judge, assess the strategy and tactic in your environment, in those communities that I don't have access to just as I do it in communities you won't have access to. I mean, the only principles are that we don't stop, <laughs> that we are rigorous, that we recognise that it's hard work, and lastly and not least, that we have a lot of fun along the way. That was the former New Zealand Member of Parliament, author and goat farmer Marilyn Waring in a film about her, directed by Terry Nash. The film was released in the U.S. in 1996 and has remained a favorite for discussion groups and house parties. You can see this film online at the website of the National Film Board of Canada, www.nl.com nfb.ca. Look for Marilyn Waring. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. There you can also subscribe to weekly free podcasts. Our email address is tuc 
at tucradio.org. This program was produced off the grid with solar power. TUC Radio takes its name from an aeronautical term. Time of useful consciousness is the time between the beginning of oxygen deficiency and the loss of consciousness, the brief moment in which a pilot may save the plane. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>